Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Thanks for choosing to hang out again this week. It's hard to believe it's November already. Uh, I had a great weekend. I hope you did too. My uh, fantasy football team, that fantasy football update, right? My fantasy football team is on the verge of 6-2. and two. Uh, I'm up by 43 points. My opponent has one player remaining on Monday Night Football, so it really should just be a formality. Uh, but you never know. Monday, you know, fantasy football, expect the unexpected. But so far, feeling pretty good about things. Second place in the league, 6-2 and two record. So it looks like at least playoffs are on the horizon. But like I said, take nothing for granted when it comes to fantasy football. It's also election time in the United States, and, and people are anticipating that, of course, around the world. I heard one story in the news that the state of Texas has already had more advanced voters in 2020 than the total number of voters in 2016. So it seems the level of voter engagement may be at an all-time high. So we'll see how that plays out. And there has been, of course, some talk and concern about what might happen in the aftermath. So to my American listeners, both in the United States and also overseas, let's hope that regardless of outcome, that we see the best in people, not the worst, if their choice doesn't win. So we'll see how that plays out. Hopefully things go smoothly and and everybody stays safe. Your feedback is always welcome. If you have suggestions for me, please send me an email. It's tomshimmerpod at gmail.com or via the Twitter handles. It's at Tom Shimmer for me personally, or the show's Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer Pod. I am thrilled to have Josh Ogilvy joining me today for the interview. As you know, one of the things that I wanted to be very purposeful about when it came to the podcast was making sure that we had practitioners on the show and making sure that we aren't just all about the educational household names, but we're talking to people doing the work in schools. Josh is the physical health education department head at Burnaby South Secondary School here in the Metro Vancouver area. And we talk about PHE during remote learning. We talk about the evolution of PHE and, of course, the assessment in PHE classes. Now, PHE is a term that I'm getting used to now. You'll hear during the interview that I use the term PE and I start to correct myself, I think, about two thirds of the way through the interview. So, uh, you know, again, it's 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 long overdue that PHE get the kind of attention and profile it has long deserved uh, alongside other subjects, and 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 Josh is a uh, just a, a an extremely competent and and thoughtful spokesperson for what PHE can be in terms of school. In uh, assessment corner, I'm going to focus on a question I've been getting repeatedly over the last couple of months, and on the Zoom calls and things like that. And that is this, Tom. What is the best type of rubric to use? And so I'm going to dig into that. And as always, we finish up today's pod with Tweets of the Week. So that's the plan for today. Let's get to it. I'll have my interview with Josh Ogilvy coming up in a few moments. But first, don't at me, but I've got something to say. Well, in all honesty... I've got a lot more to say about the curriculum reform that's happening in Alberta and those leaked documents we talked about last week. And that is, I am stunned. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Relax, Tom. It was just a preliminary proposal. Nothing set in stone. Or, let it go, Tom. (laughs) Well, I can't. I can't 
even tell you how stunned I am that a group of educated adults would sit around a room or a table or whatever that situation was and agree that this is the direction the social studies curriculum should go. Now, just a couple of reminders from last week of the recommendations that were leaked in these documents. One was that the K-4 social studies curriculum would remove any references to residential schools and equity. Another one was that children would learn Bible verses and First Nation verses about creation as poetry. And that the residential school's experience would be taught in later grades alongside other examples of harsh schooling. Now, for those of you outside of Canada, a very quick internet search on residential schools in Canada will tell you everything you need to know about the horrific past we have with our Indigenous people. Now, why would we want to teach residential schools experience alongside other harsh examples of schooling? Why? Well, clearly that's an attempt to dilute the attention, right? To say sort of, well, yes, we did it, but, um, you know, you have to put our racism and our colonialism and our harshness in context. Everyone was doing it, so we really weren't that bad. I can't even, honestly. The most optimistic view of this leak is that someone in that room has a conscience and thought to themselves, WTF, what is going on here? The public needs to know what is happening behind closed doors and how the previous government's initiating of the curriculum review has been hijacked. Well, okay, maybe not hijacked. That's unfair, maybe a little harsh. There was an election. There is a new government. There is a new mandate. But maybe how the process has veered in an untenable direction that will make Alberta, as many of the experts quoted in last week's story alluded to, it will make Alberta a laughingstock. Many felt sick about what was happening, and others called it utter nonsense and regressive. The more diabolical reason for the leak is to purposefully leak the documents that go to the extreme then you gauge public opinion, and then you react accordingly. So by making some so-called concessions, you still by and large get what you want, right? But those aren't concessions. Concessions only begin when you begin from a reasonable position. Imagine going to buy a car. The car is listed for, I don't know, $20,000, right? You're going to buy a car, it's $20,000. You offer the seller $1. And then after a couple of moments, you say to the seller, look, let's not haggle back and forth all day. Meet me in the middle. Let's split the difference. Every negotiation has some compromise and some concessions, right? What? When you begin from an extreme or an unreasonable position, there is no splitting the difference. Now, some folks have referred to the idea that the residential schools and equity content might be too sad for K-4 students. And okay, fair enough. No one I know who thinks this should be included in the curriculum thinks that six and seven-year-olds should be exposed to the harshness of the experiences like you would with older students, middle school students, high school students, right? No one's saying just rip the Band-Aid off and, and shove that in a six-year-old's face. I mean, the hows can and should be debated and to what degree and all of that stuff, right? But to leave it out altogether? I mean, like I said last week, 1955 called. Like anything, of course we need to be sensitive to the age of the students and hyper-aware of the line that establishes the threshold of going too far. 
Now, I wouldn't pretend to know the exact location of that line. So obviously we'd have to, as educators, defer to child psychologists and others who can help us know where that sort of proverbial bridge too far is, right? We'd have to figure that out. But too sad? Too sad for whom? What you really mean is too sad for white kids of privilege, don't you? Let me offer up a few suggestions to the Curriculum Revision Committee or the Alberta government or anybody who'll listen. How about this? Let's make a deal here. When you can guarantee that six to 10 year old indigenous, black, brown, or other children of color won't experience racism or discrimination on a semi-regular basis or a daily basis, then sure, keep it out of the curriculum. When you can guarantee six to 10 year old indigenous, black, brown, or other children of color won't see their parents or their grandparents experiencing racism and discrimination on a regular basis, then sure, keep it out of the curriculum. When you can guarantee that all indigenous, black, brown, or other people of color won't continue to have their color be a universal inhibitor to certain opportunities in society, look, then sure, keep it out of the curriculum. And when you can guarantee that all indigenous people and others have access to clean drinking water and that the intergenerational effects of the residential school experience are no more, then sure, keep it out of the curriculum. What's that? You can't guarantee that? Oh, I see. So it's too sad for young white children to hear about, but it's still just something indigenous, black, brown, and other children of color just have to learn to tolerate on a daily basis. Is that what we're saying? There is no clearer example of white privilege than this. Only those with privilege have the on-off switch. If you even have the option to isolate children from racism, then you are living in privilege. And again, we can't take this personally. I grew up in privilege. I know that. My skin has never been a mitigating factor in any potential opportunity that came my way. That's privilege. It's not about how wealthy you are, not about status. It's about your skin color not being another factor that's stopping you or preventing you from taking advantage of opportunities. Now look, I'm not trying to win some woke off here or anything like that. I mean, this is one of those situations where no one person has all of the answers. It's one of those, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I know it ain't that. Now, this is arguably one of the greatest displays of tone deaf I have ever seen in my lifetime. With all that has happened in 2020, and look, not just 2020, but all, yeah, 2020, everything that's happened in 2020, there is no more relevant or important time to get this right. And there is still time, Alberta. Many people in your province are embarrassed. The teachers I talk to who work in Alberta, they are horrified that this is the potential direction that their curriculum is going. It's not too late. As Colin Atchison, the press secretary to the education minister, said in the story last week, these documents only represent advice to the minister of education and are not final. Well, here it is plainly, Colin. This is not only bad advice, it is figuratively lethal advice. It is going to be 
lethal to the credibility of Alberta education. Any positive accomplishments and any milestones are going to be accompanied by an asterisk. And that asterisk is going to say, yeah, look, that's great, but aren't you the province with the racist and regressive curriculum? Uh, To the Minister of Education in Alberta, Adriana Lagrange, I'll say this. Start over. Start over, Minister. It's not too late to get this right. You're getting bad advice. And to continue down this path will be an atrocity. Joining me today for the interview is Josh Ogilvy. Josh is the Department Head of Physical Education at Burnaby South Secondary School in Burnaby. And for those of you unfamiliar, Burnaby is a suburb of Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, and considered part of the Metro Vancouver area. Josh, I know, is passionate about two things. He's passionate about student health and he's passionate about assessment. It's through Josh's assessment work that he and I met, uh, both in his participation on some of the Twitter chats we've had and also through a few of the workshops that I facilitated for the Burnaby School District. Uh, Josh has worked with the uh, Provincial Ministry of Education here in BC to lead and develop the new K-12 PHE curriculum, the physical and health curriculum here in BC. He's also been recognized as an emerging leader through ASCD. Last October, Josh and his colleagues at Burnaby South were recognized as the first ever recipients of recognition through PHE Canada in recognition of quality physical education instruction. Uh, Josh is a full-time practitioner. Check, you know that I wanted to have practitioners on the podcast. He is a Canadian, my first Canadian guest on the podcast. Check. And he teaches a subject that unfortunately often gets marginalized or even dismissed by the general public and even sometimes by educators inside the system. And that is not right. And that is why I wanted to bring Josh on since our physical health is equally important as our mental or intellectual health. In fact, I think we can argue that the two are inextricably linked. So with all of that, I'm excited for today. Josh, I want to welcome you to the Tom Schimmer podcast. Thanks, Tom, for having me. It's an honor, and I'm uh, really excited to engage in these questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation today, because as I said, I think sometimes, you know, and I, at least I know in the past, physical education, health can often be dismissed as an afterthought or, oh, it's just PE. I think that's changing, and we're going to explore that today, and I think rightfully that's changing, because I think for too long, uh, we've, we've unfortunately looked at physical education through a lens that really didn't give it the credit or the, the, the type of status it deserves. So let's, let's start the conversation by working backwards. I want to start with right now and sort of work backwards from here. Uh, talking about, uh, you know, BC schools are technically reopened for face-to-face learning, but, uh, you know, it's not exactly the same as it was pre-March as of course there are students who've chosen the distance learning option and, and there's sorts of tension around, obviously there's restrictions and all the different things that are, that are happening with the schools. So I, I know you don't speak for all PE teachers, but from your perspective, what is the, what do you think the most favorable approach to PE for this school year, the 2020-2021 school year, what do you think the most favorable approach to PE is uh, for this year? Yeah, that's a great question, and thanks for bringing that up. Um, it's it really depends on on the the platform that you're using. So, for example, in our district, um, our morning classes for our grade tens through twelve are face to face, but in the afternoon they're hybrid. So, some days of the school week they're in school, and some days they're doing work online. Um, but getting into the face to face teaching, whatever grade we have, 
Um, definitely using a lot of the guidelines put forth by our ministry, um, our district and provincial or, or, or national organizations like PHE Canada around some safety guidelines on how to be active in ways that can minimize any sort of transference of the COVID virus. Um, it's not about stay six feet away at all times because the person next to you has COVID, but it's, it's about adapting what we've done to with the new guidelines that we have in place. I'd like to be able to say that that's being done everywhere. Uh, it's definitely not. Uh, I do speak with a lot of colleagues across the province, and there's a lot of stories that if it wasn't COVID times, you wouldn't know the difference. There are lots of stories of open gyms with upwards of 100 to 200 students playing, um, no masks, no sanitization of the equipment. But I think a lot of those are kind of one-offs. I think a lot of people right now are really trying to find the best way to keep themselves, including their students, safe, adapting their activities as much as they can to get outside when it's, when it's able to. Of course, that depends where we are geographically. Um, and, and using a lot more individualized type of activities or smaller group activities, which even in the best of times in PE, small group activities are a great way to get a lot of physical participation. Um, but it's, I think right now, like we've had, we've had one COVID case at our school, and I think that really shook a lot of people because people are getting a little bit comfortable. Um, and then realizing, oh, it's been here. And it's like, okay, let's make sure these guidelines are being stuck to. Um, we have regular cleaning of our equipment in our hands on a regular basis. And we're really stressing the washing the hands and mm -hmm. um, all of those things so that everybody can be as safe as possible. Yeah, it, it makes me think about, you know, in some respects, health education, physical education, even more important when you think about being active, the building of your immune system through physicality, the exercise, all of that. I, I want to pick up on something you said there, the adaptation to small group. Can you get, give us maybe an example or two of, of how, you know, a teacher might take what they would normally do with a large group and kind of adapt it to a, a small group of four or five? Just, just maybe one or two examples that come to mind in terms of how we might make that adjustment. Certainly, yeah. For anybody who's playing volleyball, rather than having six on six, you may have three on three or four on four, kind of dividing the court into four quadrants and like that's your quadrant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not the same volleyball as normal because you don't really want to leave the quadrant, but it's given the idea of there's a bit of space we're going to move while adhering to some of the guidelines that mm -hmm. we're, we're doing. Um, other ones could be same sort of thing with badminton. Um, activities where there's a lot of distance between people can definitely help. Um, we're lucky we have basketball courts outside. Um, and we have learning pods or learning cohorts. And so if you're in a learning cohort, you try to minimize physical contact. So if you're going to do a game like basketball, you might have you're, you're distancing further than normal and maybe groups of like two on two. Mm -hmm. But you know, you're not up in somebody's face challenging the shot. you got to use right. these guidelines to kind of change the nature of the game. Mm -hmm. um, those don't happen much, um, but it's just a couple examples. If you're doing these things, some ways that you can modify the activity that you're doing. Right. It, it you know it also reminds me of a lot of times in sports when you're coaching youth sports, you're you're often talking to kids about spacing and not clustering. Or you think of the quintessential five-year-old soccer game where it's a beehive, you know, <laughs> running around the field. And and COVID. I mean, again, we're we're all trying to find these little slivers of of uh, you know upside or, or ways that we can take advantage of that. And obviously, the distancing can help sort of facilitate that. Okay, let's go back to the spring now. Uh, you know, schools essentially shut down. It was March 13th. I think we all feel like the world kind of shut down on, on Friday, March 13th. And of course, in British Columbia, we were fortunate in some respects to have spring break to kind of buffer a little bit of the, the experience before transitioning to remote learning in the, in the mid part of March and into April. So 
can you take us back to that and, and highlight for us, you know, what was the approach to PE between March and the end of the year? And subsequent to that, if you could go back and, and do it again, would, would there be anything you would do differently now that you kind of have the, the benefit of experience uh, versus the immediacy of what happened last March? So what was the plan? And if you could go back and change it, what would you do differently? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good question and, and, and kind of really brings you back to that time period. Um, you know what, you're right, we had that break. But I remember waiting, <laughs> excitedly waiting for the ministry's announcement in that second week of spring break to find out what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We actually didn't have, we had a couple weeks when spring break was over to learn a new computer system to be able to go online for remote learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a nice way, in my opinion, um, that ripped the Band-Aid off of PE or PHG. Yeah. It really ripped the Band-Aid off and exposed us for our strengths and our weaknesses. And what I mean by that is a lot of people, a lot of practices that are primarily only physical in nature, when you didn't have the students there in front of you, it really exposed them for what do I do? Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of colleagues reach out to me like, well, how should I be grading them on their daily activity journals? And, and how many videos should I have them send me? And I simply replied with, why would we want them to do that? Right. And, and not as a way, like, why are you doing that? But like, what's the intention of it? And I think a lot of people really struggled with, I want my kids to be active, which we all want them that, but what else is there to our programs? Mm-hmm. And I think by not having the kids in front of us, it really exposed a kind of a hole, like, oh, well, where's the E in our subject area? Right. Um, it, and not going to lie, it, it, it was a mind bender, mm-hmm. you know? And, and um, it's... I'll jump ahead to the last part of that question, then come back. I think for me, what I would do different is I would not pay attention to the media. (laughs) I, um, I, I was out doing the shopping, um, when it first happened the first few weeks and I saw a lot of fighting and I saw a lot of screaming and I saw a lot of things that I never thought I'm so privileged that I never thought I'd be able to see. Mm -hmm. Um, and I went to some really dark holes. And it was interesting enough, like when we were finally able to engage with our students, that's when I kind of woke up. Mm -hmm. Um, But I remember sitting at home one day and I have two kids, Caden's three and Aaliyah's one. And I remember just looking at them and I felt I wasn't present. And I was like, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And I realized I I really, I was paying attention to the media. I didn't know what was going on. Um, I was worried because of the thing I saw and everybody's caught up in that panic buying and just kind of really, really shook us, especially those who lived in a pretty privileged um, part of the world. And then when we got back to to teaching and going to remote learning, I remember reaching out to all my classes and I asked them one question, how are you? And that was it. And, And we were given, I really appreciated our district's approach with this is everybody is trying to find something that works don't overload yourselves, don't overload them as much as possible. Try to focus on no more than an hour's work per class per week. So my first week's work with them was just check in. And that first week's responses back to me signaled something that I was happy that I had done with my students leading up to the, to the, um, to the whole pandemic. Um, and that was something simply on a daily basis I'd ask them or they'd respond on a number one to five, how are we feeling today? And over the course of the next few months that we we're two to three months, whatever it was that we were doing remote learning is we evolved from how am I feeling? How am I doing to just daily check-ins? Like they would record things like, how am I doing on a scale of one to five? And you know, they talk, but what did I do today? And a lot of kids were like, I don't know what to do. And I remember a colleague of mine 
mentioned something along the lines of the importance of creating routines. So I, I challenge my students as much as you can, try to get outside and go for a walk. And this is the time period too, where we're uncertain if you're outside walking by someone, are you gonna catch the virus? So of course you're like, keep your distance and be real safe. But what we noticed when, when at the, towards the end of the year, when we started looking at the data that the students collected, we looked at it together virtually, of course, is the days that they were active, the number, how they were feeling between one and five, five being the highest, one being the lowest, the numbers were astronomically higher. And for a lot of us, that's a no-brainer, we get that. But the insights for the students, they, when I, I showed the class data and they compared it to their own, is the vast majority of them realized, I didn't realize, like, they're like, I know you said this, but now I've experienced that when I am active, it helps lower my stress level. When I am active, I actually feel better. Um, so for me, that was a really powerful experience and for them too. Um, and what listeners may not know is in June, we actually had an optional return to school mm -hmm. for students. Yeah. I think in the, what was it, three or four weeks that we were open, I saw maybe nine or 10 students total. Yeah. And the students came back, they didn't want to do anything in class. They just wanted to like to connect yeah. and to talk and you know, mm -hmm. that was it. And, and so when I look back on it, at it, I just like, I'm glad I didn't take the approach. I got to make these kids do movement because the world was crashing around everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but it was that one piece that's about like, how, how does movement make me feel yeah. in a time period when the world was, our world was drastically changing. Mm -hmm. And the responses they would send me, like some of them, I had to address some counselors, like you need to speak to the student because they're really struggling and they've asked for help. Mm -hmm. They're all fine now, thankfully. Um, but it was that bringing the mental part to the physical part that you alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. for them, it became authentic. For them, it was their life experiences. Now, what does this mean? Yeah. Um, so when I look back, I wouldn't change that. What I would change is definitely not getting up every morning, looking to see what the numbers are and what does it mean and everyone's speculation and yeah. all that. That just led me to a dark place. Yeah, it's, it, you know, I don't think PE was alone in having those conversations because I think a lot of subjects, uh, teachers teaching different subjects found themselves, you know, uh, realizing that everything they did in that face-to-face -face environment wasn't necessarily going to translate into a remote yeah. learning experience, right? And so you have a situation where, the, again, slivers of good news. And the good news is many conversations that may not have taken place were sort of forced to take place for sure. Um, let's shift a little bit here to the evolution of physical education. Um, you know, when I was in school, uh, sadly, even when I taught PE in the early 1990s, uh, I've often referred to PE as being this sort of 60-minute Lord of the Flies type experience where you'd be just trying to survive dodgeballs flying with, you know, at high velocity all over the gym and just trying to duck and cover. I mean, if you're athletic and you had a good arm, you were dominating. And if you didn't, you were sort of under, under siege for 60 minutes. Um, and, you know, you were lucky to come out of that unscathed. You know, we all, we have all seen, you know, PE class or what, you know, is referred to in the movies as gym uh, where, you know, it's just this mayhem. So can we talk, um, and I, I'm sort of setting you up for, I think, what is going to be a fairly lengthy answer, because I want you to talk us through the evolution of PE. Like, what has happened? How have we seen, at least theoretically, we know it may not be happening in every classroom, but the evolution of, of, 
of PE from gym class to now being really about physical and health education. Like talk us through the evolution of that and where we are now in 2020, you know, COVID aside, which I know it's a big part of everybody's life and, and we get it and, and, and not trying to just be dismissive, but that aside, the evolution of PE gym class to where we are today in 2020. That's a great question. And I love it because of the last couple of years, this has really picked up in social media, especially with, with, with newspapers and articles coming out using gym teacher and PE teacher interchangeably. And it might be a bit pedantic to some folks, but it is, people don't realize it does signal a kind of a respect. Um, and so for teachers who are really trying to implement the curriculum and focus on the teaching, they don't want to be called gym teachers. Right? They don't want to be, if anyone's familiar with the movie, Mr. Woodcock, they don't want to be stereotyped as that. Um, and some people don't have an issue with it. But in our world, there has been a global shift away from, and there's not there's anything wrong with PE itself. It's just elevating it to a bigger level with the physical and health education focus. And I don't think anybody could disagree that that's a bad thing. I think what it does is it actually gives more validity to what we're trying to do. And it, and it doesn't... It kind of puts all the pieces back together. Mm -hmm. Like I know here in BC, it was that way about 30 years ago. And then it got, as I always say, when I started working with the curriculum, they got divorced and now they got back together, mm -hmm. right? Um, when I was working with the ministry on this curriculum back in 2015, part of my roles was to look globally and what's the, what's the trend that's happening? So we did a lot of research and looked at different jurisdictions and this was happening in a lot of different places. But interestingly, we found that a lot of the, one of the most common goals you see in a PE or PHE curriculum is something about developing healthy, active people for life, something along those lines. Um, but in looking through the curriculums, maybe a third of their outcomes or standards had to do with that. The vast majority had to do with sports and or games. And so there's a serious disconnect, a misalignment between it. So when we developed the curriculum here, we really wanted to be authentic to the whole health approach and not just tag on something. So we brought the Ministry of Health, or they partnered with the Ministry of Education to bring that professional know-how in. Um, and it's just, like I said earlier, it kind of brings the physical up. Like why is the physical part important? And, and as teachers, we know that. As adults, we likely know that. But the people who need to know it most, the students, may not know that intuitively. And so tying in pieces of the physical, the social and mental and showing how their reciprocal relationship and they can work on their own as well, but helping them understand how one impacts the other, especially in today's world, has never been more important. So how has it evolved? You know, and some people, I, I might talk with people about the idea of free play. I'm a huge fan and advocate for free play. I think it has an important part in any PhD program. But if your program is all about free play, then they're missing out on the educational value. So something I'll ask people is once you are gone and or the PhD class is over, what are the students left with? What can they do on their own? What do they know how to do? And if the answer is nothing or they're not sure because the teachers always helped them do it or facilitated the movement, then we've kind of robbed those kids, those students of learning experiences they can take with them for life. So the educational part is just kind of looking at what we've done physically and then elevating it to kind of giving it a purpose and meaning. What's the bigger reason behind this? Thank you. And can, I think, think for can... in a lot of ways, 
we're, we're moving in the right direction. Our curriculum is not perfect by any means, yeah. but it's a movement in the right direction. And the experiences that our province has gained over the last five years have been really helpful to move the conversation forward, um, which I think COVID's kind of placed us in a limelight right now. Mm-hmm. Um, why should kids be moving? We know why. But now <laughs> with the inactivity that's happened over the last seven months, that's become important as has the mental and the social piece. So I think in, in, in an unintentional way, we've been elevated to incredible importance. And now it's up to us as PhD teachers to answer that call. Right. I, I think you can draw a, a, a real parallel between, you know, as you were describing that, it makes me think about, you know, literacy instruction and uh, sort of focusing on not just teaching kids how to read, but to become readers. You know, the idea that, that we don't want to teach you to learn how to read and simultaneously learn to hate reading. So the idea that, you know, we, we want you to be able to read and we want you to love reading and choose reading as a leisure activity. And it, it strikes me that what you were describing there, Josh, is, is the idea that we don't want you to just go through, you know, PHE class. We want you to, once that's over, think about healthy lifestyle, think about, you know, the, the way that, um, you know, you live your life independent of the school, that phys- physical activity is a natural part of your, your daily life. Would it be safe to, to say, because I think the traditional PE model often centered around teaching sports, where, you know, a lot of times, why did we do volleyball in the, in the, in the fall? Well, because it was volleyball season, or why are we doing the basketball unit in January because it's basketball season? It strikes me that, that we are thinking now about, we're not teaching the sport, but we're using the sport to teach you the skills or to teach you the idea. Is that a fair um, assessment of where we are in, in PE? And if so, could you talk a little bit about uh, how that manifests in a classroom. Yeah, and you know, thanks for bringing that part up about literacy because in our world, there is a literacy that we focus on. It's called physical literacy. Yeah. And essentially, it's looking at, you know, are the students developing a sense of confidence and competence to be able to participate in, in a variety of activities mm-hmm. and environments. And, and the more we can help them understand that mm-hmm. for themselves, yeah. the more physically literate they're going to become. It's not just about the skill, but about the knowledge and understanding mm-hmm. and the value of it. Um, and what you mentioned earlier about, yes, about using activities as vehicles. Um, there's definitely a teaching method in, in PE, PhD that I'm a huge fan of called teaching games for understanding. And it looks at a conceptual understanding of what are the themes in this type of game. So for example, if you're looking at territorial invasion games, such as basketball, hockey, soccer, football, some basic defensive structure and offensive structure, the game doesn't matter. You're not necessarily teaching someone how to shoot a foul shot but you're teaching them about why would you stand a certain distance away from someone what are you trying to do if you're playing defense how does that look in this game how does it look in different games so like if they were to step on a court or a field and play a game they've never done before they'll have a basic understanding a foundational understanding of offensive and defensive concepts they may never have done that before but if they know the general trend or the general understanding and strategies to use then they're more likely to participate. Through practice, they can develop those skills, but that's not likely to happen at a huge extent in our PhD classes. There's just not enough time. You can develop some, but the idea is like, if you have an understanding of what to do, then you know how to participate in school and out of school. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely a method method that I enjoy. Yeah, for sure. you know, I, I'm not overly familiar at all with with the research in in PE, but just thinking about, you know, where where do you see the research going, or have you, 
been a part of anything, any sort of research studies, or have, are you seeing a trend with the research? Like what, are, what is something about PE instruction that we are either on the verge of beginning to understand or implement, or maybe we've actually collectively learned something in the last few years, just re the recent experience. What, what are we learning or what do we need to know about where the research in physical education is going? Yeah, another great question. And it's something that many years ago I considered leaving teaching PE. Um, I, was, I was quite bored. I, I was that type of teacher that really just didn't know what to do. And I was teaching basketball three times a day to three different grade levels. Mm -hmm. And it was the exact same thing. Why? Because I didn't know what to do. Right. Um, and then I started really pushing myself and, and I explored the world of assessment. And then I explored the world of research. And over that time, there's a couple of research, evidence-based research that for me has had profound impacts. Um, one of them being the socio-ecological model, which essentially looks at the individual and their associations with people, organizations, and the greater community. So basically, how do they connect with and function within it? And when when you think about a PhD class, that is so profound because we want these students to want to move in life outside of school. But if we never introduce them to the community, and we know through a lot of research already that activity levels amongst the community is dropping. So if we don't bring them into the community and, and help them understand where they can do what, and here's where you can go if you want to try this, and here's an experience that maybe you never would have done, then those kids never get that experience. They don't understand how to use their community or the organizations or people within it. Um, the earliest one though that impacted me was definitely self-determination theory. Um, if people are familiar with Daniel Pink's drive, his work was largely influenced by it. And when I'm looking at that in PE, I'm looking at, we're essentially looking at behavior change. And because and, naturally humans don't want to expend a lot of energy. We just don't. And so how do we want, how do we get people to want to move? And when we look at things like motivation and, and autonomy, it's incredibly powerful. Um, in the last few years as well in the PE world, world, there's a big research that came out around meaningful experiences in PE and youth sport. And that one, again, all co kind of coincided when I was looking at the socio-ecological model. It was just so profound because it's like the things that they found, for example, are kids having exposure to social interaction and activity? If so, they tend to enjoy it more. Is it fun for them? Is the learning personally relevant? It, are they developing some sense of motor competence? And is there a challenge? So you're looking at those five things and you ask yourself, how is my PhD class delivering on these? Or how do they show up? And another one that's recently been added was a sense of joy, that sense of intrinsic excitement, yeah. getting into that state of flow. Like when I was a teenager, I could play basketball for hours. Now if I played for an hour, I'd be I couldn't walk for a couple of days. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so it's, it's about finding something different. But if we use those to kind of like how, how do these aspects of this evidence show up in our programs? Mm -hmm. um, of course, the world of assessment for me has dramatically changed how I teach. Um, it's not just about collecting data. It's about the response to gathering that data and what do you do next? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I would definitely be in error if I did not mention this. Um, and I know my colleague Joanna Shepard would never let me live this one down. And I think the timing is perfect on EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah. Um, sadly, since, since George Floyd, I woke up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, I've always known my privilege, but I think that one, it was like someone smacking me in the face telling me to wake up. And on social media, I started connecting with a lot of teachers of color across the world. And just really opening my eyes 
on things that I never really considered before. Um, in terms of how is equity and race and things of this nature showing up in a PE class. And I was like, wow, it's PE class, we're all playing, but who decides on the activities? Who decides on how things are done? And I look at my class, my grade eights this morning, there are two Caucasian people, myself and another student, and it's a class of 26 students. And I don't know if I ever would have, not that that should make a difference, but I don't know if I ever would have woken up to see that as much as I do now in terms of being open to newness and in that sense of equity, um, diversity and inclusion. And I, I think that's an area that's going to dramatically change our field for the better. Yeah. Um, I know that's a whole lot of things, but that's yeah. just kind of when we're talking about research and stuff, those are the areas that have really impacted my career yeah. and areas that I'm looking to dive into because I want to be better. Um, and, and these are definitely areas that I think will help more importantly than me getting better is the experiences for our students to be better. Yeah. I think you're, you're, you know, you're spot on with the question about equity. And of course you aren't alone in the sort of collective awakening last May with George Floyd and, and, uh, you know, what that's done for all of us in terms of our recognition and our awareness of things that we may have overlooked in the past. So uh, it's, it's a journey for all of us to continue to just be better at what we're doing, you know, as far as bringing about equity and, and, and um, inclusion, inclusion in terms of physical education as well. Um, you know, as I travel around and I work with different schools, I, you know, admittedly, and, and this would be true of every subject, but we're talking about, you know, PhD today, I still see, um, you know, a bit of that old school approach, even in 2020, there's still that old school approach. And and we'll set aside for a moment, maybe uh, a teacher who hasn't been exposed maybe to a new way, we'll set that aside, because that's a valid reason why someone might continue doing what they're doing, if they just aren't aware of where PE has gone, and for whatever reason that is, we'll set that aside. But on the other side is sort of the unwillingness to embrace the newness. So from your perspective, what do you think is um, stopping some teachers from, you know, shifting to a more modern approach to PHE? Yeah, big question. <laughs> um, there, there's definitely a deeply established culture in the PHE world. Mm -hmm. um, I know this from my own experiences, uh, and I know this from a lot of experiences with my colleagues. I, the stories I hear are heartbreaking where many actually want to leave the field that they wanted to get into. Some want to leave teaching in general. Um, teaching PHE is underrated. A lot of people think it's simple. Some people might make it look simple. It is physically and cognitively exhausting. And I'm saying that because one of the things that I believe is one of the barriers to, to evolution is the time. It's the time to try something new, reflect on it, grow with it. Um, can be a barrier. Um, I think there's definitely the, the impacts, the influences of professional socialization. So when you come into a department, you see what's happening, you know, you don't want to rock the boat too much. And so you just kind of look around what's working. I'm going to keep doing this. And then that can really impact the teacher you become. I don't believe in my heart that any PhD teacher ever enters the field to become the type of teacher that they may have studied in their undergrad mm -hmm. and quote unquote that teacher. But it can be an exhausting profession and without the time or willingness or openness to kind of try something new, to think of a different way of doing things, um, it's really hard to make that change. 
I was incredibly fortunate when I began my career out here in BC. My department head was in his last five years of teaching. He very easily could have just folded it in and just wrote it out for his pension. He completely, completely changed his approach. We were the first department to bring in rubrics. We were the first department to get rid of norm referencing. Um, and in his last five years, he really pushed us. And I was, this is my second year of teaching. And I was like, well, what do you mean we're not doing skills testing? Well, we're the fitness norms. Like this is, I knew something was wrong with that. But like you mentioned earlier, I didn't know another way. Right. So those first three years working with him and of course the department as well, just, wow, just complete 180 in terms of my, my, my ideas to wanting to be different. Um, and I, I think the exposure to that and the ongoing support is something that's desperately needed because people who teach PhD love the job and you don't want to leave it. But if you feel compelled to go with the flow, it's only a matter of time before you're going to be that flow. Mm -hmm. And then the next person coming in will look to you. And next thing you know, it might be like you're in the last 10 years and you're like, what's happened. Right. Um, and, and the other thing I, I think about too, it's nobody in particular, but, I think the professional development of the PD around PHE is lacking. It's, we go to these one-off shops and they're great, but we know through a lot of evidence that you need ongoing support right. and there's just not a lot of that around. Um, and and the, given the time to, to build capacity for our PHE teachers to grow with ongoing support for PD, mm -hmm. I think that's a, a very important part that's going to help us evolve. I mean, if not, the fact that you can travel around the world, and likely see similar experiences. And I'm sure if you open the grade books, you'd probably see pretty consistent grading processes. Yeah. Um, the fact that that's done globally speaks to something desperately needs to change. Right. You know, also think of the added pressure that PHE teachers often have, which is to coach. And so when you think about the development of, of and growth as a professional, now, rightly or wrongly, I mean, you know, the direct or indirect pressure to coach the basketball teams or, or or the volleyball teams, et cetera, you know, some, someone has to, and, and typically PHE teachers are often the ones that are most qualified to do so. And yet at the same time, where is the time to grow professionally if I'm also coaching and all that? So we've got to try to find, so maybe administrators out there, we've got to try, try to find some balance so that if we're going to raise PHE to the level uh, we're, we're seeking and the level that it deserves and giving it the kind of, you know, academic uh, attention that it should be given. We've also got to allow PHE teachers to to grow professionally. Can we talk about assessment now? Let's let's you know assessment in a PHE class can be challenging, of course, because a lot of it is a you know again pre-COVID or post-COVID, et cetera. A lot of it was uh, synchronous. You know, you're observing and watching, and yet watching everybody uh, can be near nearly impossible at you know in one class period. So. As someone, I know you have uh, just a very strong assessment literacy. You, you understand assessment at a very intimate level. How do you approach, what's, what's your assessment approach with PHE? And from your perspective, what are some of the do's and don'ts of assessing uh, in a PHE classroom? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to start by sharing a story. When I was presenting at the uh, PHE Canada conference last year in, in Montreal, um, I was talking about something very similar. And one of the participants raised his hand and said, would it be fair to say that trying to assess everybody in your PhD class at one time is the equivalent of having an English class of 30 students give an oral presentation at the same time? <laughs> and I just started laughing like, yes, <laughs> you know, 
that's bingo. You got it, yeah. right? Like it's, you'd get the noise level, you get the chaos and you get the stimulus. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So I was like, no one would do that. Um, so one of the things I like to do, if it's, if it's looking at conceptual understanding of gameplay or things of that nature is obviously using very clear learning targets, building very clear and transparent learning progressions in the formative stages. So you should have ideally a good understanding of how well students are progressing. And then when it comes time to do some sort of summative piece, it's not doing everybody at once. Taking a couple of students, maybe four, five, six, whatever the numbers you're comfortable with, and a class time, and then looking to see what they can do to allow them a lot of opportunity to demonstrate their learning. Mm -hmm. When I first started assessing, probably my third or fourth year of teaching PE, I know that sounds bad, I say PE because that's what we were. When I first started assessing, I started looking for the whole class. I tried to get everybody done in one class. So if we were doing badminton, I'd look at someone for maybe 30 seconds to a minute. What I failed to realize is that was not an authentic assessment for them because the opponent could have been below their level, way above their level. But I just, I needed to get everybody done in one class. So I did it and I gathered information. It was not an accurate snapshot. And where I've gone from that is maybe four, five, six students in a class and just giving them lots of opportunity to demonstrate. And the information gathered from that, truthfully, should not be too different from the information you've gathered from their formative stages, because it should lead right into each other. If it's drastically different, something's off. Mm -hmm. And you gotta look and see what that is. Um, And I mentioned that, and I talked to a lot of people about that when they're asking, how do I assess movement skills or or understanding and gameplay? And it's like, don't do everybody at once, because you're gonna drive yourself insane. Um, You're not gonna give kids the time to truly demonstrate what they can do. Um, and, you know, in some of the kids, if, if in the formative stages they have shown you, like, they're at the highest level of achievement, they're probably not going to show you much more in the next stage. Right. Um, so that's the benefit of having very clear targets of progressions leading up to, to the summative piece that you might actually be implementing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing I like to do, too, is it, and it helps build relationships, because I truly believe assessment is contingent upon strong relationships with your students. Mm-hmm. So using the idea it's a triangulation of assessment, so watching observation or having a conversation or depending on what the, the learning standard or outcome might be, is they might produce something, but not relying on solely one thing. And, and I'll give two examples. Um, a number of years ago, it was probably about three years ago, there's a student in my grade nine class who was skipping a lot. And he showed up and we were doing net wall games, which is a, it's an activity, it's a theme and, and teaching games for understanding. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he came in and we were using badminton. And the one part of me that wanted to penalize this kid because he was skipping class, which I don't do, but there's that part of me, you know, the old school of me was like, oh, I got to do it. So I brought him over and I asked him, you know, you weren't here the last few classes, you know, we're doing our demonstrations of learning today. It's what I call the sum of the pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked them about why is this person moving on the court the way they are in Babington? Why are they moving to the back, to the front, to the side? And the spiteful teacher in me was angry because he nailed every single question. <laughs> so he was able to explain to me yeah. why the person was moving. And then he's like, well, they should have moved there. He didn't turn off the birdie, the shuttle fell where they didn't go. So I was just like, okay, you didn't demonstrate this to me. I've seen him in the earlier stages before we skipping class, but he knew what to do. Yeah. So that really helped me because like I can, he knows what to do. Yeah. And then I think back to last year, there was a grade 10 class in BC. Grade 10 is the last time students are required to take a PhD class. And I had a, 
um, a girl who had never had any positive experiences in PHE. And we were work, working on territorial games and defensive concepts. And the idea was like, show me, you know, spacing and movement. You know, she was nailing it. She was the appropriate space. If their check got away from her, she was running, trying to get in front of her. When the check got the ball, she'd stand between them in the scoring area. And so then I called her over and I just asked her, how do you think you did today? She was so nervous. She looked at me, she's like, not good. And so I said, okay, let's go to the board. Here's the criteria we're looking for. Which one of these didn't you do? She's like, I did them all. And I was like, exactly. Yeah. And so it was like, good. Cause I was really trying. And I was like, you were. Um, so I just reinforced like the things we were looking for, talk more about the progressions that we learned in the formative stages. And she's like, I'm a really good defender. And I'm like, yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, and for her, it was just using that assessment information and the data that, you know, we're looking from what she was doing to help her understand she doesn't have to be the best basketball player, right. but she can step on a court and know what to do. And from that moment on, I kid you not, anything we did in class, she was one of the first people to jump on and say, let's do it. Yeah. It's uh, you know, your, your, your description there, your approach to assessment just reminds me of a couple of things that we often emphasize when it comes to assessment. One is quality over quantity, making sure that you give students the opportunity for you create high quality experiences for them. And it also reminds me bigger picture that the, everything you talked about is applicable in a math class. It's applicable in a science class and it's applicable in a PHE class. And I want to apologize. I have been using the term PE. So I'm going to, I'm going to correct that and make sure that I, that I follow the proper terminology. Hey, just don't use gym class. There you go. We're not calling it gym. That's for sure. Um, but, but I think that sometimes uh, PHE teachers will, will think that, well, this assessment work is not for me because I don't teach a so-called, I'm using air quotes for listeners, academic class, and yet the fundamentals of assessment are universally applicable. I want to finish up our PHE conversation with a hypothetical that I think, um, you know, I run into this a little bit as I travel around and work with different schools, and you start to realize that some people who are teaching PHE are not really trained to teach PHE. So here's here's a hypothetical. So I'm a teacher. I'm, I'm in a small school or a rural school, or maybe I'm a, an elementary school teacher who, for the first time in my career, I'm being asked to teach a PHE class. Uh, I don't have any training. I don't have any background. Um, you know, I wasn't an athlete, but I'm, I'm now being asked to cover it out of necessity, right? So I'm being asked to teach uh, PHE, and obviously approaching it, you know, K to 12 is going to change based on the age of the students. But generally speaking, if I was a teacher in that situation, what advice would you give me if you were mentoring or coaching that teacher to to take on that assignment? What 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 would you how would you coach them? What advice would you give them? Yeah, that's a great question, and it comes up a lot. And, and it's not I'm just elementary. We get we get non PE background teachers in high school all the time. Um, and the bit of feedback or thing coaching I would give is definitely first and foremost find out about your students. What are what are things that they enjoy doing? What are interests of theirs, both in school but also out of school? But using that to a degree, for example, if all the kids, and you get a lot say this, dodgeball, like, oh, okay. But you'd be surprised how many students never get a chance to voice, I love this type of activity. Yeah. Um, so, and especially if you're in a rural area, you, like the great thing about being in a rural area is you've got so much outdoor access. Now, of course, that can be quite seasonal depending on where you're living. Um, but just because it's snowing out doesn't mean we're not active. Right. So you find ways and students will know what they do. And if the answer is nothing, then introduce some things perhaps 
your experiences, even if they're not good experiences, because the more real you become to them, the more likely they're going to want to engage in what you're doing. A um, couple of things too, I don't teach elementary, but I know a lot of colleagues of mine who do teach elementary and it just makes sense for any, any system is have very clear structures or routines. For example, transition, if you're in a classroom, how are you moving to the gym area? Are they getting changed? What's the process to go from the gym to the change room, change room? And sort of thing. Um, even if, depending on the size of the gym, you might want to have stations where people are, are standing, especially in COVID times. You might want to have markers, if you not markers itself, but like little stickers or something on the floor, yeah. or somehow indicating where people will be standing. Mm -hmm. um, and and I say this all the time too. When I get student teachers or pre-service teachers coming in, I'm always shocked at how many don't have some sort of signal, like a whistle or something of that degree. Um, because if you try to use your voice to gain attention, you will not have your voice by the end of the day. Right. Um, so, so having something to gain attention. Um, and, and, and I say this at all levels. If you're going to use activities, don't have activities that have elimination built into it. Mm. Every kid has a right to be physically active. Every kid has a right to participate. And if we throw activities in there where elimination happens, it doesn't have to be dodgeball, it can be other games that kid that student is sitting out for who knows how long right so if, if you're going to use something especially at the young age when you really want them moving um non-elimination games yeah and, and if the game is an elimination then have something else like go tell somebody a joke or you know touch every wall in the gym and you're back in um right. something where everybody gets to participate because I, I can't think of any other subject area where we would say oh you did this so you can't participate but watch while everybody else does right i mean can you can you really make someone feel any worse than that yeah, that's a really good point josh you know I, I never even thought of it that way but uh you know this idea that you could have a student who either gets eliminated you know early on or even even more students who are choosing to get eliminated by just allowing themselves and therefore they get to opt out. And we, you're right, we would never say, oh, well, you got that question wrong, therefore you can't do math for the rest of the, the period or you can't, no more experiments for you in science. We would never take that approach. So um, I think that's, yeah. that's great advice. Um, I wanna finish up today with a little bit of fun as I do with every interview. I'm, I'm gonna ask you a few lighthearted questions and put you on the spot a little bit. Um, and so listeners can maybe get to know you a little bit on a personal level, nothing too intrusive. These are just some fun questions. And then we've got, of course, one more question to finish up our time together. So feel free to take these in whatever direction you want to, but these are just some quick hitters as we finish up, get, getting to know Josh a little bit on a personal level. Okay, so first one. Uh, Josh, besides the city you live in, uh, what's your favorite city in the world that you've been to, or maybe that you haven't been to, but what's your favorite city besides the one you live in? Oh, a tough one. Not that I've traveled a whole lot. Uh, I'd have to say Berlin. Oh, okay. How come? Uh, as, a, as, a, as a history person, um, I I loved how, I love, not love, sorry, passive. I love how history, their history is in their face. It's not hidden. I, um, I went to a concentration camp, which was incredibly humbling and, and sad, but what I appreciated when they showed us is, is the barracks where the SS troops were staying is where the current officers, junior officers are being trained. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind it, and they were told is, we want you to understand what it's like when, a, when power is abused. It's quite a timely lesson right now. Um, but for me, it was just walking around and seeing all the landmarks and, and being by all the buildings. And 
that part, the history part of me loved it. Um, and then just the city itself, it was just something different that I hadn't really experienced before. And there was this one restaurant, La Solas, I think, I can't quite remember. Anyway, they had the best chicken pasta I'd ever had in my life. Wow. I went there, I was there for four days and I went there for three nights. Which is so good. Wow. All right. Well, I'm going to have to put Berlin on the list then of places I, I've not been to that I am going to have to choose to go to for sure. Uh, second one, would you ever or have you ever gone to a movie alone? Yes. You have. Okay. Do you remember what yes. you saw? <laughs> this was a regular occurrence when I was single. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's funny. My friends are always like, why do you? I'm like, I don't, like, how often are you talking to the person next to you anyway? But I think the most embarrassing part was walking in and out solo. Yeah. Um, I think the last one I saw by myself was 28 weeks later, the, the sequel to 28 Days Later, that does zombie type of apocalyptic <laughs> fiction in, in London. It was a little intense. <laughs> yeah. It's not, the, uh, it's not the watching the movie alone that's the issue. It's the walking in and out of the theater alone. There's something about that, right? And yet at home or in other places, you probably would watch a movie, no problem. But yeah, for sure. All right. There was no cell phone either. I couldn't make it look like I was talking to someone on the way out. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, what do you mean you're not going to make it? You could have this yeah. fake conversation <laughs> and all that stuff. All right. Uh, fourth one or a uh, third one. Uh, uh, this is a this or that kind of either or choice. Seinfeld or The Office? Seinfeld. Definitely Seinfeld. Okay, that was pretty quick. How come? Um, I watched Seinfeld was on, laughed hysterically. My roommate got me into the original Office from London. Okay. Um, never got into the North American version. Oh, just okay. couldn't. Um, but no, Seinfeld, I don't know what it was. It's, yeah, yeah, definitely Seinfeld. Yeah, I'm definitely a Seinfeld guy. Although I do, I have to say, I do love The Office too. But I, I was one of those Seinfeld watchers that every Thursday night or you know Wednesdays yeah. and Thursday nights it was pizza night and Seinfeld was on <laughs> for sure. All right, number four. Yeah. When is it acceptable to start playing Christmas music in the stores? Oh. We played it last night at home, but the stores <laughs> December first. <laughs> you, you were playing Christmas music last night. It was. It, it, when we came home, it was. There was a chill. It was cold and rainy. Yeah. And I don't know why Jingle Bells was in my head, and so <laughs> I was humming it. My son goes, yeah. "Christmas music." I was like, "All right, it's on." Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I, I tend to be a post Halloween. Don't don't give me Christmas music until post Halloween. But you know, people get a little bent out of shape about it. But we talk about how much we yeah. love Christmas music, and then you have this little seven day window where you're allowed to play it. And uh, I yeah. just think you know, play it when you want to. It's happy music and and, and all yeah. that. Okay, last one. Who was your favorite teacher growing up? Tell us who your favorite teacher was and why. Wow. Um, quick, but there were two. Mr. Hebert, um, when I struggled with my mental health issues as a grade 12 student, he was the only our teacher to check in on me. Wow. Um, that had a profound impact on me. Bigger story there, don't need to go there. Um, and Mr. Dickinson, my, my math 10 teacher who basically helped me understand that with effort you can actually achieve i i was actually in a in a grade 10 advanced math class um they did the pre-assessment i had moved from ontario in grade 9 to new brunswick in grade 10 and i bombed the assessment so bad that the counselor and the math teacher said i could not be in the class i got my heart bent out of shape because i thought that i couldn't go to post-secondary school so the first semester i had to go take the remedial math with mr dickinson and I'll never forget, I can see it right now. I was the type of person, the type of student who always wanted to understand why. And finally, after I asked him why so many times, he said, just stop, 
let me go through the process, then ask your question. And I kid you not, Tom, I stopped asking why. And when teachers didn't answer my question, I just got frustrated and said, I don't care. But I followed his directions. I asked him a question, he answered. And it's almost as if math became easy for me. So I aced that remedial math. When next semester went back to grade 10 advanced math, we had exemptions. I would say if you got above an 86, you didn't have to write the exam. I chose to write the exam. And that was my math experience in grade 10, 11, and 12, where I chose to write the exams even though I didn't have to. Um, And math actually, I talked earlier about that sense of joy. Math actually became a sense of joy for me. I love the cognitive challenge of it. And that's, I I attribute that 100% to uh, Mr. Dickinson. It's, you know, what I I found so interesting there is how how quickly you remembered those two teachers. And and that just speaks to the impact that they they clearly had on you uh, in 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 your in your youth as you were coming through school. Uh, it's it's incredible the relationships we can we can develop and the impact you have on students for sure. Okay, one I, final. I oh, go ahead, Josh. Hubert, you know. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Just I was saying I can picture Mr. Hubert right now walking through the halls at break time, parting the students and coming right up to me, putting his hand on my shoulder. Mm. Like I'm getting children right now because that moment was it's like. It was unbelievably impactful. Yeah. And it just, uh, I didn't answer him. I said, yeah, I'm fine, which was a complete lie. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he saw me yeah. and took a moment to check in was just incredibly powerful. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a, a tribute to obviously who he was as a, as a teacher. One final question for you, Josh. It's a question I ask everyone on the podcast, and it has to do with success. And uh, I've asked everyone so far, and it's been interesting to hear everyone's different perspective. But the question is, if a random person on the street stopped you and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, it's, I think it's showing up daily in the different arenas that you enter, the different things that you take on in life and continually getting in the game, continually trying to improve yourself and or others. It's even in the low moments, it's just showing up and, and really trying to merge or push forward. Um, I, I don't, I know people ask me a lot of time about goals and I think goals are great, but I think goals like success, it's, it's not impactful if you reach it and just move on to something different. Mm-hmm. So like constantly taking on whatever your, your life is and just showing up, being present and continually trying to move forward. Um, and that, that's kind of how I base my career is just never perfect very happy with where I am, but just continually trying to make growth that helps me and others around me. Yeah. Just showing up and, and continuing to strive to grow, to, to grow and, and move forward. I love that. Uh, listeners, you can follow Josh on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter handle is at Josh Ogilvy four. That's the number four. Um, and, and Josh, listen, this was really great. Uh, I just can't thank you enough for, for joining me today. I think this is uh, a really important topic that, as I said in the beginning, um, P-H-E often gets dismissed and, and, uh, and marginalized in a way that is undeserved. And I, I think that the work that you, your colleagues, uh, not just at Burnaby South, but around the province and across the country and literally around the world to, to, to bring a kind of sophistication and seriousness to P-H-E, I think is, is really, really important and, and taking it to the next level. So you are undoubtedly going to play a huge role in that. And so I just, you know, I want to thank you for your leadership uh, as far as that's concerned and know that um, you are going to continue to be heard from as far as the growth and development of, of PHE programs around the world. So Josh, again, thanks so much uh, for joining me today. I look forward to, to doing this again sometime.
thank you, Tom. This was an absolute honor, and uh, I, I cannot thank you enough for this, for this opportunity. Great. All right. Thanks, Josh. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk a little bit about rubrics. This is a question that has come up quite frequently over the past couple of months in many of the PD sessions I've been conducting, and it kind of goes like this. The question is, Tom, what is the best type of rubric to use? Well, the answer is, it depends. Like almost everything in assessment, context and nuance matter. Now first, let's not lose the plot when it comes to rubrics. We don't make rubrics for the sake of making rubrics. We, we make rubrics so that success criteria is transparent. We make sure that the students understand what success looks like. Now, when it comes to choosing the format, it's a little like choosing an assessment method, right? Where with assessment methods, we would examine the cognitive complexity of the learning goal and therefore choose the most appropriate assessment method, right? We want to make sure that how we're assessing is a good fit for what we're assessing because as you know, assessment methods aren't interchangeable. So with rubrics, they're kind of the same. The nature of the experience or the assessment purpose will go a long way to determine what's best. I also don't think it's wise to sort of fall in love with one rubric format to the point of exclusivity. Look, sure, you can have a favorite. You know, some people really like using a certain rubric a lot. You could use one disproportionately more than the others. But the most important thing about rubrics is to understand both their strengths and limitations in terms of what the format offers you. The formats are not at war with each other. You know, this is not, you don't have to choose sides. Uh, taking advantage of your assessment literacy is to know when not to use certain formats, right? So it, that's where we have to think this through a little bit more. So let's dig into the different types of rubrics. Now, there are many different iterations and formats, of course, but they generally fall under the categories of, of three. There are analytic rubrics, there's holistic rubrics, and then there's single point rubrics, which have in recent years become quite popular with teachers. So let's start with the analytic rubric. Now, when you hear the word rubric, most people think of the analytic rubric, right? You think of the the aspects of quality say down the left-hand side, you've got the levels of performance across the top, and you've got all the individual boxes that have specific descriptions inside of them that are determining sort of the different aspects or levels of quality. Now, the, the rubrics will never be as thorough as they need to be. Rubrics always need to be taught and they need to be partnered with exemplars, right? Examples that bring the descriptions to life. Uh, using rubrics without exemplars are too abstract and too generic for students to understand, right? Using exemplars without criteria makes the examples really challenging to, to focus in on because you don't know what you're looking for. So there's kind of a pairing that goes along that. So you've got the analytic rubric, it's got all the individual boxes. What's the advantage of that? Well, the advantage of that format is its specificity, right? So you can, whether through highlighting or some sort of indication, see what specific aspects of quality are strong and potentially what specific aspects need strengthening. And that specificity on that rubric is, is really advantageous for the formative purpose of assessment, right? When you're focused on what's next and how to advance the trajectory and all of those different things, that format can be really helpful. Okay, so what's the potential downside or what are some of the challenges with analytic rubrics? Well, first, they're challenging to create. If you've got a six by four rubric, you now have 24 descriptions to come up with. So that can be challenging. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's just that that is the reality. And I think it's really important to understand that what I'm doing here is not 
trying to be dismissive of any format, but to, to just have an honest look at each format. The other part with analytic rubrics is that they can be a little cumbersome for summative assessment, especially when the overall level of quality is being determined, right? So if you have a six by four rubric, it's got 24 boxes, but you've only got one space in your gradebook to record the level of proficiency for this particular project or, or whatever you happen to be, or this essay or research paper, whatever you happen to be assessing, you have to create either, you know, some, some sort of logic rule or something where we have some consistent determination of certain levels, right? So it'd be something like if you have mostly fours, some threes, but no twos and ones, then overall you're a four, something like that. So you, we look at logic rules to determine what level of performance a student is at. So let's now turn to the holistic rubric, right? Where now you have, it's almost like the analytic rubric turned on its side a bit, right? So down the left-hand side, typically you have the levels of performance and then Beside each of the indicators, you have a fairly robust description of quality, but it's more holistic, right? So rather than separating out all of the different aspects, we say, here is what the four is, or here is what exemplary is, or here is what the top level is, right? And, and we go through those descriptions. So you typically have, you know, multi-sentence descriptions of what quality work looks like. Provide, so the holistic rubric provides a much broader overall description of quality, usually, again, along several levels, you know, three to five levels, etc. So what's the advantage of the holistic rubric? Well, there are fewer moving parts. So one of the advantages of holistic rubrics is they are tools that, that increase reliability. And of course, when you, again, reliability means consistency, right? So we have to have teachers, if, if two or more teachers, for example, teaching the same grade level subject, aren't determining excellence or proficiency in a similar or like-minded fashion, you then, of course, compromise what is called inter-rater reliability. So reliability in assessment always means consistency, right? Are we consistently assessing what we say we're assessing? And that reliability is increased when you have fewer choices. And so the holistic rubric, often used in large-scale assessment, and, 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 and especially when you're assessing writing, uh, that cr increases the reliability because, again, there's fewer choices. So the holistic rubric is actually a, a, a very reliable and excellent tool for the summative purpose when you're when you're looking at assignments or projects or things like that. So then some people say to me, well, Tom, if the holistic rubric is more reliable, why don't we just use those? Well, what's the downside? Well, the downside is holistic rubrics lack the detail that the analytic rubrics have. So they tend to be more generic. They tend to be more sort of overarching. Uh, we make holistic decisions all the time in our lives, right? When you walk out of a restaurant and you say something like, well, that's a great restaurant. You haven't ignored all of the aspects of quality, but you've synthesized them. You've said, I looked at everything, customer service, the food, the ambiance. I looked at everything and I say, that's a great restaurant. So that's an advantage of a holistic rubric. The downside is they lack the detail. They're not really great teaching tools. So using a holistic rubric with students is helpful if you're saying to them, here's an example, I want you to judge its overall quality, but it's not a great tool if you're saying, here's an example, now I want you to determine what's next for this learner. So the lack of detail makes it challenging for instruction and for feedback. The third type of rubric that is really gaining in popularity over the last, I would say the last five to seven years or so is the single point rubric. Now structurally, the single point rubric has the aspects of quality. It's kind of a hybrid in a way. 
the aspects of quality are broken down, but they are typically down the center of the, the tool. So it, you break the criteria down very similarly to the analytic rubric, uh, but you only have one description. Now, there is some debate out there about what should be in that criteria. So some would say down the center of the single point rubric, you should have your top level of performance. What is excellence? And that is what we're striving for. There are others who say that if they had a four level scale that the three or the proficient is what they put down the middle and they save any comments for the four. Now there, there's some debate out there for sure. And, uh, and, and I recognize that some people have different perspectives on that. My perspective on that uh, is that I would always put my top level of performance down uh, the center of the rubric of the single point rubric. Uh, I don't, I just don't know why we wouldn't teach to excellence and why we wouldn't want excellence as that criteria. Now, I do know that some people worry that if you're outlining or articulating your top level of performance, the question is, are you restricting the student's creativity? Are you, re you know, restricting them in terms of the, 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 the levels or ability to expand their thinking or things like that? Um, for me, the key to any rubric uh, is that the rubric should describe quality, not prescribe output. So describe quality is, is where I would fall, not prescribe. And as long as you describe what quality looks like, you're not really restricting anybody's ability to be creative. I, I can talk more about that in another episode, but ultimately I would put the four down the center. And I understand, I recognize there's debate on that. Now, What's really great about single point rubrics is the space. So you've got the the four or the you've got your criteria down the the center, but on either side you have open space. And on the typically on the left-hand side, you've got a column with open space that is for aspects that are specifically in need of strengthening. And on the right side you say aspects that are are strong. And so the advantage of this tool is that the space beside each of those specific aspects is used to personalize comments. So what's the real upside to the single point rubric? The, the real upside is that you can personalize feedback. One of the complaints people have about analytic rubrics is they're too generic and too impersonal. So the single point rubric allows you to, to really get specific and personalized with that feedback, which is a real upside. So what's the potential challenge with single point rubrics? Well, listen, they are time consuming. And we just have to be honest about that, you know, being able to highlight an analytic rubric. So while the analytic rubric, for example, might be labor intensive to create, they're quite efficient on the back end. Single point rubrics are the opposite. They are quite efficient to create, but they can be labor intensive on the back end. And the other challenge with the single point rubric is that in, if you're, if you're finding the summative purpose, like if you're in the summative paradigm and you're thinking about verification and grading and the student falls short of the criteria, then there isn't much in the tool that helps the student understand where they are. So you would have to be more descriptive of that as well. So again, I think the most important thing about any rubric is to understand its strengths and limitations and know how to go about making sure that you've got the right format. Now, again, just think it through and be thoughtful about how to uh, construct them because we, we don't want to get into this death by rubric spiral. So so maybe next week I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that, about what I often refer to as task neutral rubrics that allow rubrics to be transferable so that teachers aren't, you know, they don't have binders full of rubrics in on their shelves. But 
As far as the question about what's the best type of rubric is concerned, it of course depends. And so you have to ask yourself, what is the nature of the experience for your students and, and for you as well? You know, what is the purpose and what are you trying to accomplish? And then once you know the purpose, then the choice about format will easily flow from there. I want to take you back to Twitter this week and encourage you to follow Rick Rowe. He is a high school math teacher and also the co-moderator of the SBL chat, the standards-based learning chat that happens every other Wednesday on Twitter. Uh, Rick's Twitter handle is at RowRickW, so at R-O-W-E-R-I-K-W. And the thing that I've come to really appreciate about Rick's uh, Twitter feed is the mix of practicality, but also theory. He's very grounded in sound assessment and grading practices, but certainly shares a lot of the practical strategies he utilizes with his students. And that also is very authentic in the way that he talks about some of the challenges his students are finding with the work they're doing or some of the successes he's had. So it's just a really sort of authentic experience from someone who is a practitioner. So again, Rick Rowe on Twitter, at RowRickW. Uh, high school math teacher would really encourage you to follow him. That's all we have for today. A reminder again of the virtual workshops coming up. There's still time to register for Grading from the Inside Out. That's happening in one week, November 9th and 10th. And that's the two-day training on that book, Grading from the Inside Out, the book about developing a standards-based mindset and sound grading and reporting practices. Now, if that's too soon, uh, there'll also be a two-day training on the same book, the same content on December 10th and 11th. So, all the information about that can be found on the solutiontree.com website. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. At Tom Shimmer Pod is for the show. My personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer. And also, please email me your questions for Assessment Corner or listen, any suggestions you have for the podcast, uh, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com is the email address. I'm still, you know, trying to find my sweet spot with segments and length and all of that and trying to make this a more enjoyable listen for you. So as I said before, you may see some adjustments along the way, uh, see some tailoring uh, things for the podcast. Just again, it's always a work in progress as far as I'm concerned. Next week, my guest is going to be my very good friend, fellow Canadian and assessment colleague, Katie White, who hails from Melfort, Saskatchewan. She is the author of both Softening the Edges and the book Unlocked. That book is about using assessment as the key to everyday creativity. So you know that Katie and I are going to have a great conversation. I always love talking assessment with Katie. So looking forward to that conversation. And again, thanks for joining me this week. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast. And, you know, again, if you're so inclined, maybe spread the word about the podcast. I, I would really appreciate that. Just trying to grow the listening audience. So that's it for today. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.